From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we present three 650-word stories about money from writers Beth Kwan, Anne Levin, and Emma Suarez-Baez. My mom only brought her most treasured items to her last home, which we found in a woven bin in a closet after she died. When my mom's best friend Adele died a few years ago at age 86, she didn't have much money left. That's because in her mind, money was no different than Jeopardy, her favorite TV show. Something to be enjoyed, but nothing to worry about. Papi was a small business owner. A pharmacist, to be exact. An entrepreneur, to be precise. A slave, to be honest. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Christia Basil describes the challenges she faced and the responsibilities she balanced on the winding path she took on the road to becoming a writer. Writing helped me process the panic that comes with parenting. Writing helped me weed through the waters. Writing helped me face my fears and fail forward. That's all just ahead on Read 650. You save it to spend it. You crave it and you lend it. Do any of us really feel that we have enough money? We posed that question in a call for submissions and presented a collection of true personal stories about money from a cast of talented writers before a live audience at City Winery's flagship location in New York City. We've selected three of those stories with very different takes on the subject for this week's show. First up is writer Beth Kwan, the daughter of hardworking immigrants whose parents spent a lifetime accumulating things that reflected their interests, an abundance of stuff that would ultimately become Beth's responsibility. This is writer Beth Kwan on stage at City Winery in New York reading Found Money. My sisters and I cleared out my parents' belongings in stages. First, the four-bedroom house they had lived in for 40 years. Then the condo my mom downsized to when we moved my dad to a memory care facility. Then my mom's final apartment in an assisted living community. They had stacks of things that prevented us from walking in a straight line or using the living spaces as intended. My mom only brought her most treasured items to her last home which we found in a woven bin in a closet after she died. Among them were silver proofs in the shape of $100 bills, Eisenhower silver dollars, John F. Kennedy half dollars, and sets of mint US coins from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Until this discovery, I never knew my parents had collected coins except for the basket of pennies in my dad's study. The things my parents accumulated pointed to their interests, like the hundreds of Leica and Nikon cameras, <laughs> and back issues of Shutterbug magazines my dad would spend hours leafing through, or thousands of books on Korean and US history from evening visits to the used book section 
of Barnes & Noble. Other items made little sense, such as the multiple salt lamps, toothpick holders, and monkey figurines. It's a collector's item, my dad would say. My parents were practical, too. There was always plenty of dental floss, stain remover, thumb drives, root beer, Cheerios, and gasoline in five-gallon jugs in the garage. <laughs> Despite the abundance of stuff, I thought we were poor. My mom constantly fretted about money. She was the daughter of a prime minister in Korea and had had a household staff and chauffeur. But the Korean War and political unrest upended her life. When she immigrated to the US in 1963, her family didn't support her, and she arrived with $200. My father's life was simpler, and he too immigrated from Korea with very little. As we sifted through their things, we also discovered legal pads with handwritten credit card deck, uh, records documenting a $50,000 balance paid off over months. My father made $65,000 a year working at IBM, but as the second eldest of eight sons, he helped support his family as they joined him in the US. We shopped the sales and clipped coupons, but my parents sent us to camps and college. They made sure we traveled. We went to 48 states by the time I was 13, visited Korea, and participated in exchange trips to Europe. I didn't know what to do with the coins, but I started to see them through my dad's eyes and the fascination the currency must have held in his adopted country. My parents surely thought they were valuable, so I took them to Stax Bowers Galleries, a coin dealer on Park Avenue. As the dealer appraised the collection, it soon became clear my parents were wrong. <laughs> These were not objects with extraordinary value. It was purely about the quantity of silver. Eisenhower silver dollars don't contain an ounce of silver. <laughs> so those were rejected. Surprisingly, the Kennedy half dollars which started to be produced after he was assassinated, were 40% silver and were worth a whopping $7 each. The other pieces went strictly by weight. In total, $299.20. Hardly what my parents would have expected. When the dealer offered me a check, I felt conflicted, even sad. Should I keep the coins? adding to my own hoard to pass on to my children? <laughs> Was it okay to cash them in? I accepted the money and told myself I was doing my parents right. I still had the Eisenhower silver dollars, so on my way home, I stopped by a bank and exchanged them for bills. But I kept one of them. As my dad would have said, it's a collector's item. <laughs> Beth Kwan served as a communications director at Columbia University and Barnard College, and she's currently a speechwriter at NYU. 
A former journalist, she was an editor and writer at Women's Wear Daily and Newsweek, and her work has appeared in Allure, Time Out New York, The Village Voice, and Fortune, among others. Up next is writer Anne Levin with a remembrance of Adele, a beloved family friend whose main failing, according to Anne's dad, was that she didn't take money seriously enough. This is Anne Levin reading How to Think About Money. When my mom's best friend Adele died a few years ago at age 86, she didn't have much money left. That's because in her mind, money was no different than Jeopardy, her favorite TV show. <laughs> Something to be enjoyed, but nothing to worry about. Which is why when I think about money, I think about Adele. In a world gone wild with excess, she firmly believed she had enough. Adele was a part of my life since before I was born. She moved to Mount Pleasant in early 1954 with her husband, the new optometrist in town. She was just a bride of 21 when my mother, then the sisterhood president at our synagogue, approached her and said she'd have to direct the Purim play because she, my mother, was about to have a baby. That baby was me. In our small Jewish community, they soon became fast friends. Every Sunday, she'd come over to our house to do the New York Times crossword puzzle with my mom and often stay for dinner. One night, my dad told her sternly, Adele, you don't take money seriously enough. <laughs> my father did. The owner of the local furniture store, he fretted about every fluctuation in the markets. Late at night, he'd pore over the Wall Street Journal, trying to figure out which stocks to invest in for us, his five kids. Adele and my dad were both the children of immigrants. His preceded him in the furniture business. Hers ran a grocery store in a poor part of Pittsburgh. She adored her father and took his words to heart. He once told her, never drive a car fancier than your customers. When she grew up, she took that to mean, trade in your old car for the exact same model. <laughs> so she was stuck with a cheap white Pontiac Grand Am. I doubt she would have even worked outside the home, except that in 1972, her husband died, leaving her at age 40 to raise three girls alone. She went back to school, got a master's in education, and held a series of jobs at the local community college and the Pennsylvania Labor Department, where she wrote grants to fund vocational programs for people with disabilities. As a single working mom, still something of a rarity at the time, she paid off her mortgage, sent her daughters to college, and attended every wedding, funeral, bar mitzvah, and bris she was ever invited to. Unlike my dad, she never sweated the details of how to pay for all those trips, or the jars of honey she sent on Rosh Hashanah, or the black caviar she splurged on for her New Year's Day open house, or the boxes of fudge she sent home to her coworkers when she came to see us at the Jersey Shore. She'd show up at our summer rental with a bottle of Bloody Mary mix, a bag of Fritos scoops and her three bean salad dip, not caring that my parents were gourmets. 
In fact, the first thing she did was drive to the supermarket to buy Miracle Whip because we were a staunchly pro-Hellman's family. Week to week, Adele entrusted her paycheck to TIAA Kref, and when she finally retired without ever once having checked her balance to see if it was up or down, she was stunned at how much money had accumulated. She used to say she owed her life to the Pennsylvania State Retirement System. Toward the end, when she could no longer live alone, she had just enough to buy a room in a retirement home where she always kept the door open so she could watch the world passing by. She joined the weekly poker game, the only woman among a shrinking pool of 90-something men, and she played the slots at the local casino. <laughs> My dad would have chided her, Adele, what a waste of money. She would have said, but Leonard, I have enough. <laughs> Ann Levin is a writer and editor who worked for many years as a journalist, including as national news editor at the Associated Press. She's also been a reporter for the San Diego Tribune and several other newspapers and continues to review books for the AP as well as for USA Today. She's at work on a memoir, and you can see her work at annlevinwriter.com. Our third story about money comes from writer Emma Suarez Baez. Her parents owned a pharmacy in her hometown in Puerto Rico where they worked hard, they worked often, and they worked late. And while the fruits of their labors comfortably supported their family, a lifetime later their daughter wishes their efforts to build a business and make money hadn't taken so much of their time, energy, and attention. And she often wished for the things money couldn't buy. The title of the story Emma presented at City Winery is framed as the existential question we might all ask ourselves, what is enough? Here's Emma Suarez-Maez recorded on her first trip to the Reed 650 stage. Papi was a small business owner, a pharmacist to be exact, an entrepreneur to be precise, a slave to be honest. Christmas time meant extra anxiety and work, both of which trickled down to mommy, my siblings, and me. The phone rang frequently. Who would unlock the cosmetic displays and show perfume bottles to the clients? Who would wrap gifts? One of us had to stop doing the work of being a kid, eating, playing, doing homework, march down the block, and become a man or woman of commerce. Wrapping gifts for strangers? That was easy. Fold the paper over the edge of the prescription's counter, tear a piece three inches longer than the gift, wrap the paper around the present, and fold the edges into sharp triangles. A tape, and voila. In a hurry, repeat these steps many times over several nights. On Christmas Eve, we stayed open late. We wrapped Kamei soaps, Max Factor lipsticks, Q-Tex nail polish, anything. Kids from the projects came with coins, maybe a dollar, wanting to buy their mommy a gift. So we looked for something they could afford and wrapped it. These gifts were going under someone else's tree, not ours. We children didn't get gifts. We got money. 
bills on a tree. No cards, no wishes, no blessings. No one went to the store to find something they heard we liked. No one promised to take us shopping. On Christmas Day, we had money in our pockets. Not a toy, not a book, not a pair of sneakers. Money ate papi and mommy's time, like the termites eating our home's wooden floor, floor planks and walls. Money devoured their energy, much like the way the burgundy Pontiac Catalina guzzled gas. Rectangular pieces of paper weighing only one gram shaped us into aliens on our own planet. Evenings began at 9 p.m. after the pharmacy closed. TV news ensued. Papi and Mami were too tired for conversation, too tired for more responsibility. My papi's ambitions and projects were those of a good-hearted man who walked to school without shoes. Papi dreamt of owning a building, El Edificio, a business and home in one location. He wanted his family to have enough. They were in conversations about what it would truly cost our family to get involved in such a venture. As the militia began in our termite-ridden lot, we became latch and key children in a good enough cement house in another part of town. Papi said El Edificio was for us. Actually, he built it for himself. Mami's dreams ended up bottled up on the pharmacy shelves. She fried our eggs in the morning and dropped us and dropped us off at school. By 9 a.m., she was at the pharmacy. Then she picked us up from school at 1.30, took us home, cooked, and drove back to the drugstore by 3. Came back to make dinner around 5, and then left to the pharmacy again. The missing and the silence were too loud for anyone to stand. Its persistent ringing eventually <coughs> propelled me to another continent. When my husband and I became city workers, we named over time Blood Money. Its lure, a dim light in my being. To know what is enough is true wealth says the Tao Te Ching. Whenever I felt the pull, the drifting towards more, bigger, better, and this is for the kids, the light turned neon blue. We stayed in the Bronx, paid for private school. We bought our small house later than our peers. Yes, yes, money has its majesty. I stand on the effort and the money me papi and mami made. However, instead of the cha-ching of the cash register, I wish a card came with their gift. A card with pictures 
and words carrying sounds like humming, chatter, laughter, and song. Thank you. Emma Suarez Baez left Puerto Rico at age 17 and says that writing has been the thread that allowed her to stitch together the loss of territorial, cultural, linguistic, and relational continuity that came with leaving her country. Emma holds a master's degree in bilingual education. She's worked with children and teachers in the Bronx public schools, and her work has been published in a long list of literary publications. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati Mayer, and Rhonda Zangwill. Sarah Caldwell is our chief technology officer, Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show is produced by Jim Russick. We'll be back after a short break with writer Christia Basil, who goes between the lines, the part of the show where writers talk about their favorite subject, writing. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from City Winery, a fully functioning urban winery offering intimate concerts, food and wine classes, private events, and fine dining. City Winery strives to deliver the highest end combined culinary and cultural experiences to guests passionate about sharing wine, music, and good food. City Winery brings the wine country experience to the city. View the complete event schedule at citywinery.com. Writer Christia Basil grew up in South India where a primary mode of transportation was the bicycle. Now, riding a bike on those crowded, busy roads demanded the cyclist develop a keen sense of time and space, a confidence in his or her ability to navigate through the narrow spaces that opened up momentarily between trucks and pedestrians and livestock, the kind of fleeting, ephemeral space busy riders also seek in their full and busy days to practice their craft. This is Christia Basil reading her personal story entitled Cycle Gap. In the teeming seaside city of Chennai, in the south of India, where I am from, we have a turn of phrase, cycle gap. It's not a translation from Tamil, the regional language, one of the oldest in the world. It's not English, although it may seem apparently so. Its etymology lies in that sweet spot between the two, the true language of the Dravidian masses, the hybrid Thunglish. Cycle gap. Literally speaking, it's a gap just enough for a bicycle to squeeze through in heavy traffic, usually between a towering truck and an overcrowded bus. Figuratively speaking, it's the slim window of opportunity that the quick and the brave seize and manifest into a grander destiny. Born on the congested streets of my hometown, wielded in a broad range of arenas from police stations to parliament, auto stands to airports, classrooms to boardrooms, and executed with equal parts flustered vexation and grudging respect, the phrase is a poem in its own right. Any notion of me being a writer was born in cycle gaps. A single word scribbled on toilet paper during a diaper change. A barely coherent sentence typed one-handed on my phone while nursing my daughter. A stream of consciousness feverishly recorded on voice memos. 
It didn't matter how much or how well I wrote. It mattered that I did. As I stumbled along in the dark tunnel of early motherhood, cycle gaps were my shafts of light. As I struggled to find my identity as a mother, cycle gaps helped me discover myself as a writer. As momming morphed into several full-time jobs, cycle gaps allowed me to have a side hustle. Now, there are many things you can do with your cycle gaps. You can take a break from bubble guppies and watch Bridgerton. You can take a well-deserved power nap. You can take a much-needed shower. Bridgerton, check. Power naps, check. Showers, I opted for discretionary dabs of Arm and Hammer Fresh Meadow scent so that I could write. Writing helped me process the panic that comes with parenting. Writing helped me weed through the waters. Writing helped me face my fears and fail forward. There was a period of time after my daughter outgrew the baby swing when she would only sleep in my arms. I would hold her and bounce her and sing to her, but the more I watched the clock, the longer it took for her to fall asleep. So I stopped watching the clock. I made peace with the process. I sat with her and learned to appreciate the weight of her warm body in my arms. This anchored me. It stilled my mind. It allowed my thoughts to meander, flit unfettered, make connections that are impossible during the whirlwind of wakefulness. I wrote and rewrote epics in my head. I didn't retain more than a word, a fragment, an image. But these words, fragments, images, they were my passwords to a portal. As my children slip into their dream world, I stepped through this portal into the imaginary world that I've been slowly and painstakingly building word by word. This is my playground and I play with abandon the way my children have taught me all day long. I change, rearrange and discard with audacity. I rebuild, strengthen and shape with specificity. I paint, polish and embellish with whimsy. I am the goddess of my own imagination and so, with hubris, I create. 99% of the time, I am a person without control over anything. During that precious 1%, in that cycle gap, I seize control. I manifest. In between potty training and playdates, I weave together words. In between laundry and dishes, I pull together a plot. In between my baby's first step and her first word, I birth my first book. In the cycle gaps of being a parent, I become a writer. Christia Basil has been a producer in the film and TV industry for nearly two decades, working with PBS, BBC, Animal Planet, The History Channel, and other media organizations to create compelling and relevant stories. She was inspired to write for children after having two of her own, and her debut picture book, A Sky Without Lines, about a boy separated from his brother by a border, received many prestigious honors. She was invited to give a copy of her book to President Biden during his campaign, 
in acknowledgement of his commitment to rejoin the families separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. An immigrant herself from Chennai, India, she now resides in New York. Between the Lines is the place we invite writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. We want to hear your perspective on writing, what it means, why you do it, and how you do it. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and you'll also find submission calls for upcoming live shows at City Winery's flagship location on Manhattan's west side. You'll also find information there about upcoming writing workshops. If you liked today's episode, we have two requests for you. Please tell one friend about Read 650, and if you haven't done so already, please follow the podcast so you get our episodes delivered to you every other Wednesday. That's our show for this week. Thanks again to writers Beth Kwan, Anne Levin, Emma Suarez-Baez, and Christia Basil. For more Read 650, follow us on your social media of choice, and please join our mailing list for our bi-weekly newsletter. We promise we won't bomb your inbox, and you can opt out anytime with one click. Thanks so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about this book and word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.